Hello and welcome to another edition of Webinar Extra. This is where we bring you some more time with one of our webinar presenters so that we can answer some of those additional questions that, well, there just wasn't enough time for during the live event. Think of it as the dessert to the main course. You mean the bonus track at the end of the album. I mean the podcast after the night before. And if you haven't already seen the webinar, then you can head to our college online learning page and check it out. Or you can just keep listening, nodding sagely while you wonder what everyone is banging on about. The choice is yours. We hope you enjoy the programme. So Ali, good morning. Thank you for joining us again following the webinar. How did you find the webinar? Excellent. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you for the invite again. And it was really a good experience from my side. And I hope your listeners and your, your, your viewers really enjoyed what we talked about last week. Well, based on the number of questions they sent in, they certainly did. And I know on the evening, um, we only had a chance to answer two or three of the questions. So we've got some more here. And I guess without further ado, let's get stuck into those. Yeah, so a question, question that a member has asked is about flame hemorrhages at the um, optic nerve head. Are they always indicative of glaucoma or should people be concerned about neurological pathologies as well? I think flame-shaped hemorrhages, this is an interesting question. I guess in the absence of any optic nerve swelling, the vast majority of these patients would have suggestions of glaucoma. It's really important to look at the whole sort of pieces of jigsaw, as I always tend to say. You know, if there is a cup, a large cup or a nipping on the side of the cup on that disc with the flame hem disc hemorrhage, um, it's probably indicative of glaucoma rather than anything else. It's also important to make sure patient's blood pressure is reasonably well controlled because that's one of the other relatively common causes of such hemorrhages in the absence of optic nerve swelling. Um, if there is optic nerve swelling, then you have to think about a lot of other things that can cause swelling rather than just glaucoma, usually as we mentioned in the webinar, kind of inflammatory slash vascular sort of causes. So it's a really useful advice. So thinking about the whole differential diagnosis um, that not just thinking, oh my word, it could be could be a neuropathology, it could be glaucoma, it could be diabetes, it could be vascular occlusive, the Absolutely. whole picture, one piece of the jigsaw. Absolutely. Absolutely. Always look at the bigger picture and try to piece the jigsaw together rather than just one piece and try to figure out what's going on. So, so that leads us very nicely onto the next question. So causes of bilateral inferior hemianopia. Um, can you share with us, you know, what are the common um, differential diagnoses of that? And I guess the less common differentials of that as well. I think, I think one of the uh, kind of my comments to start with, when you say inferior hemianopia, I wanted to make sure you're not, you're not talking about a quadratinopic field defect that respects the vertical midline. I think your, your question really revolves about an inferior altitudinal field defect where it's kind of panning the whole inferior field in both eyes. And anatomically, that does not happen retrochiasmal unless you have a bilateral retrochiasmal lesion. So if we start from the front to the back, if you like, to try to figure out what's going on in there, the commonest causes would be, for example, a bilateral non-arthritic anterior ischemic each eye will have its own altitudinal field defect. Another anterior example would be perhaps a, a, an advanced glaucoma patient who have relatively symmetrical advanced cupping superiorly in both eyes with a large arcuate that broke into an altitudinal field defect. If you go 
further back and you start to think about retrochiasmal causes, then you can get a bilateral inferior quadrantinopic field defect that, you know, because it's happening in both eyes from a parietal lobe lesion in both sides, you will end up with an inferior altitudinal field defect, but it's not a genuine altitudinal, it's, it's combined, you know, the two sides together. Um, uh, interesting on that point, we've seen, we've seen several patients for that matter who end up with what we call a checkered board sort of uh, visual field defect, you know, quarter inferiorly, quarter superiorly in each eye. It's like a chessboard sort of, you know, appearance simply because they had multiple strokes that affected different parts of their visual pathway and you end up with a, an inferior quadrantinopic field defect on one side and a superior quadrantinopic field defect on the other side from a different reason. So it's really important to think about, as you said in the first question, think about all your differentials and start from front to the back and then try to figure out, is it a genuine bilateral condition or a simply just a sequential event that culminated in this appearance? So that's a really interesting point you raised regarding, it could be more than one pathology more than one thing could be done or more than one episode of a, a stroke could be done on here without having the previous visual fields or, or the, the history. Can you ever be absolutely sure what's from a particular episode or is it again, just putting detective work? I think, I think interestingly, you mentioned detective work. Neuroophthalmology is largely, largely detective work because you get to see the aftermath of what happened and you, not, you need to try to piece the pieces together, trying to figure out what happened in the past to explain what you're seeing at the moment. And if you remember your neuroanatomy pretty well, you know that these altitudinal field defects cannot happen from something. If they are genuinely altitudinal field defect, they cannot happen from anything retrochiasmal because of the separation of the visual pathway. So it has to be anterior to the chiasm. So it has to be something affected that optic nerve on that side. And similar second effect uh, event happened to the other optic nerve by chance was, was relatively symmetrical. Um, and that's where you start. And then you look at what your differential for each of these episodes and then figure out what's exactly happening in there. And talking about anterior ischemic optic neuropathy and altitudinal defects, how common are they? Do you see them a lot in, in your practice? It's, or are they it's, the, it's the norm, if you like. It's the classical field defect that happens to non-arthritic anterior ischemic. So we talked about anterior ischemic optic neuropathy, and the two main differentials in that is arthritic and non-arthritic. For the non-arthritic type, it's very, very classical to see an altitudinal field defect. In fact, when you see it, you feel pretty sure that this is probably just a non-arthritic anterior ischemic. While the arthritic type, the GCA type can, can have, because it's usually far more severe, you get a wipe out of the visual field more or less. But if it's altitudinal, it's really very common. It's really more indicative on, of a non-arthritic anterior ischemic optic neuropathy. I'm just picking up on your experience with checking pupil reactions if someone's got a, an altitudinal defect hmm. and you were doing pupils would they still have a sufficient RAPD that you would detect that? Uh, the, the level of RAPD obviousness of the RAPD if you like depends on the difference between the visual functions on one side compared to the other usually if you have a large altitudinal field defect you will have some sort of reduction of visual acuity, some sort of reduction of color vision. So all that together make the function of the 
one side optic nerve compared to the other is, is hugely different. And with that, you'll get a sufficiently obvious RAPD. That's really useful. Thank you very much. Next question. Question about treatments. Um, Acetamolazide, is it given intravenously or as an, as an oral therapeutic? I guess this question revolves around using acetazolamide in, in, in IIH. And I think, I think, you know, glaucoma people will always say to you that we tend to use uh, acetazolamide intravenously, for example, acute glaucoma episodes. We tend not to do that. We tend to because your patient will have a lumbar puncture that will drain some of their CSF fluid and bring the intracranial pressure to a sufficient level, you don't necessarily need to use diamox or acetazolamide intravenously at that stage. You can only give you, you can you can give it orally with having sufficient effect because you've already reduced the intracranial pressure using your lumbar puncture. We we use we use that quite a lot and we can vary the dose depending on the severity of the optic nerve swelling, but I, I don't recall having to use it intravenously in any patient in the context of IIH. And, and talking about IIH, what about visual acuity? What kind of visual acuity might a patient have if they're in stage? You, you, they have a really useful gradient scale. So if they're in a kind of stage one. That's, that's an in, a very interesting question and a very useful one, actually, because interestingly, IIH does not affect visual acuity until quite late in the process or if it's a fulminant type IIH, which is extremely unusual and rare and present with a very acute, really hyper swollen optic nerves in both sides. That's when you can lose vision, but the vast majority of your IIH patients will have a mild to moderate optic nerve swelling, which is bilateral, could be asymmetric, as we said. But interestingly, their vision, their central visual acuity continues to be good for a long period of time. And that's helpful because sometimes we see these very asymmetric swollen optic nerves and we don't know, is it IIH or is it inflammatory, for example, in a patient who's young and, you know, a female, et cetera. Once you see that optic nerve swollen, you know, for two, three weeks and the vision is still 6665, then it's far more likely to be IIH rather than an inflammatory process. IIH in the mild sort of moderate degrees does not affect central visual acuity. And it's, it's really unusual to, to see drop of vision in these patients. So a really useful clinical pearl for, for, for listeners to pick up on there. If the visual acuity is good, then actually it's less likely to be an inflammatory Absolutely. Um, cause. So, so anecdotally in practice, I'd say that I see more, and, and the numbers are so low, it's not significant, but I probably see more IAH patients than I used to see when I first caught this it was 10, 15 years ago. From your experience, is there an increase in the incidence of the condition or is it a broadly, broadly stable um, situation? Again, very interesting comment from you, Daniel, because it is on the increase. If you look at the risk factors for IIH, which the main one is obesity and raised body mass index, we've seen, I mean, if you look at the, 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 the community studies, the incidence of IIH in the overweight and obese population is one in 200 or something like that. And it's multiple times more higher than, than the, the common, the normal population. So with the increased obesity in the community, you will have increased kind of rates of IIH as well. And as you correctly said, we are picking these patients a lot more commonly these days compared 
to perhaps 20, 30 years ago because of the increased obesity and overweight in the community. Leading on very nicely to the next question. Um, if you've had uh, an episode or a neurological incident of it once, is that individual then at risk of reoccurrence of the condition or is it a one-off event? Usually, and we get asked this question actually by lots of our patients when they come and then they improve and then, you know, their, their optic nerves are back to normal. They ask us, is it going to come back again or not? Do I need to be aware of anything? The problem is, one, we don't really fully understand why these patients develop IH in the first place, but also from, from the clinical experience, if you like, we note that these patients will have this in their bodies somehow. Their anatomy and physiology kind of suggest that they will have the risk of IIH no matter what they do for the rest of their life. So it's usually linked to their body uh, weight. So if they lose enough body weight, the IIH, we, we say to them, will go into remission with the help of acetazolamide, although acetazolamide is not, I mean, there is lots of clinical studies on this and it does not really tell it to a real treatment. It just suppresses the symptoms and, and helps with the acute stage, but it does not change the, the long-term sort of effect. However, what we found is that losing enough body weight, usually people say around 10 to 15% of your presenting body weight, that will put IH into remission. That means it's asleep. It's there, but it's not you know, causing you any problems. Problem is, if they, you know, 10, 15 years down the line, they put on weight again, it will rear its head up again and it will come back again. And we've seen that many, many times. We've seen patients who are well controlled, no IIH, nothing, discharged from clinics. Then two, three years later, they put on 10% of weight, they come back to you with new swelling. And are there any other markers going on? So, so you've talked about the risk factors and lifestyle factors, but are there certain genetic predispositions that make you more likely for this or is it purely purely a, a, a lifestyle um, type condition? I don't think it's purely lifestyle. I think there is some sort of genetic slash anatomical sort of variation in these patients because if you look at again the, 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 the population studies, not every single overweight or obese woman will have IIH. So it's a certain category of these patients. Unfortunately, we don't fully understand why exactly that happens in certain people, but there is lots of hormonal slash anatomical slash genetic sort of factors that play, and you just need the second hit from the environment where you put on weight and that's it. You've had your, your, your chances taken. That's really useful. Thank you, Ellie. So moving on to a different condition now, just optic neuritis. It's a quite a broad question here. Now, how urgently should optic neuritis be referred and would that alter depending on their presenting symptoms so a big uh, question uh, it, it is a big question i think i mean it, again to me this is interesting because uh, we've seen patients who are ultra sensitive if you like who pick up on very subtle signs themselves and they present to the eye emergency clinic here in manchester where they come and say look you know i feel my eye is different and there is something going on there is a little bit of pain perhaps but then their visual acuity is excellent. There is no swelling to go on with. There is no RAPD or anything. And the clinician would wonder, is this just, you know, somebody who's having some headaches and, 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 and some migraine and they are presenting? Or is it a very early optic neuritis 
kind of condition. And that forces us to see that patient again in about a week, which sometimes is not very practical for us or for the patient. So from the community point of view, from the optometry point of view, I guess optic neuritis uh, kind of urgency depends on the level of visual functions. I think if you look at a patient who's says to you, you know, my vision is still 6'6", six, six. I have a little bit of pain, there is nothing, there is no red flags, there is no major optic nerve swelling. You can afford to see them perhaps easier than the hospital services within a week or a few days time to recheck on their visual functions again. If it deteriorates, then yes, that's the time to send them in. Or if it's not, or if it's gone, then it's probably nothing to worry about. If again, you remember the natural history of optic neuritis, it troughs around two weeks from onset. So if your vision, if your patient's vision drops down, it's gonna drop down in the first two weeks. If it does not change over that two weeks period, it's not, it's probably not optic neuritis in the first place. So the urgency in, in my mind depends really on, on the presence of red flags, i.e you know, how much loss of vision they've had, how much sort of optic nerve swelling they had. Is there anything neurological going on that you want to send the patients really quickly in? Or I can afford to wait a few days and then recheck again. And, and just to remind listeners always, when we're talking about referral criteria, it's always a good, good idea to check your local guidance, what you've got in place, and also to, to phone a friend and speak to your local neuro-ophthalmologist if you can, um, arrange a time for them to talk to your LOC or, or to work out what the preferences are for your local pathways and your local communities to, to, to have this conversation in advance of the patient presenting in your practice and knowing what to do. Absolutely. I always, I always say local guidelines are, are critical in, in these situations because you don't want to be the odd one who's sending something that's unexpected to be sent or not to send somebody that you are expected to send. I think Talking, as you said, to, to your local sort of uh, hospital services, especially if you have a neuro-ophthalmology on local sort of arrangements, then it's, it's useful to talk to them, see what they prefer, and then follow that, that guidance. That's great. So talking about, I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce this correctly, MODAD um, and nerve fiber layer inflammation, is the cup preserved? Can you tell us more about that? So. I think this stems from the picture that I showed in the webinar where there was a patient who had bilateral optic nerve swelling with significant loss of vision, I have to say, but that swelling was a little bit unusual because the swelling was surrounding the optic nerve with the swelling of the nerve fiber layer, but preservation of the central cup. And th that probably prompted this question, do you only get the preservation of cup in MOGAD disease or something else? I think the interesting bit about MOGAD, which is, again, is a recent sort of, you know, category of diseases that was found when we were able to detect the, the MOG antibodies. The interesting bit about that type of condition, it has a tendency to cause what we call perineuritis. So the optic nerve is affected, but primarily the surrounding edges of, of the optic nerve rather than the core of the optic nerve. And hence, you get this type of swelling. It's not pathognomonic for it. It's not, you know, something that you only see in MOGAD, uh, but it's, it has a bit more tendency to happen in MOGAD. I think what I wanted to show from that image is when you see something that doesn't really fit, really think about what you're seeing, think about it twice and try to consider other alternative conditions. You know, when you see a bilateral optic nerve swelling and you think this is IIH, but the patient does not fit the picture, 
don't take it at face value and think about it twice. I, I find it really mind stimulating when you see these pieces of jigsaws that does not fit. You have to think, you know, I need to do something else. It's not your day-to-day -day mundane, you know, barn door optic neuritis or non-arthritic anterior ischemic. There is something else going on. I have to think a little bit more about it and figure out what's exactly going on. And MOGAD or, or that bilateral optic nerve swelling was kind of a classical example of that. Going back to optic neuritis, what kind of recovery in visual acuity terms can people expect? We've looked at this, you know, there's loads of studies on this. And I think the natural history, as I mentioned before, the natural history of optic neuritis, at least the typical type of optic neuritis, which is the demyelinating type that's linked to multiple sclerosis, is you tend to get a worsening of visual functions of visual acuity over the first two weeks, then it starts to improve very, very slowly over a period of two to three months. Now, the studies suggest that about 90% of your patients would recover about 90 to 95% of visual acuities and visual functions. We've seen patients who recovered to full 6665 vision before. It's not something that could not happen. It, it's a common occurrence for that matter. But as I mentioned in the webinar, your patients would tend to still feel the difference. I think what we don't have is the level of sensitivity to pick up what your patient is experiencing through our clinical testing. So visual acuity on SNNL or on Logmar is a relatively crude assessment because we do it in a very sharp contrast sort of way, not like the day-to-day -day low contrast situations that your patients can see. Perhaps assessing contrast sensitivity might be a, a better sort of way of detecting these differences. But again, your patients would tend to say, you know, my left eye, which had the optic neuritis in the past, still feels a little bit different. You can't really pinpoint what's exactly they feel because you assess their color vision on Ishihara and it's perfectly normal. You assess their visual acuity and it's perfectly normal. You check for IAPD, there might be a very subtle one, but it's not so, something that you can you know, comment on. So there is something that they are subjectively aware of, but you can't pinpoint objectively, at least with our, as I said, crude methods of assessment. You shared with us a grading scale um, during the webinar. Do you know if there's any grading scales available for OCT in optic nerve head swelling? I know a lot of our members are now using opt, um, OCTs in practice, and it's one of those things you don't see a lot of neuro-ophthalmology like you might see retinal disease. So, so anything to help guide people make decisions I think the grading scale, the Friesen grading scale, goes more on the appearance of the optic nerve on, on images, perhaps. There is lots of uh, artificial intelligence work on this to try to figure out, try to differentiate, if you like, the pseudo-swelling from the genuine true swelling, to differentiate uh, different types of swelling for that matter. There was lots of work around trying to differentiate the optic nerve swelling that happens in papilledema from the one that happens in inflammatory optic neuropathies. Um, I think we're not there yet, but you know, just a comment, there was this study where they felt that a genuine optic nerve swelling will cause more raised optic nerve head compared to a pseudo swelling, which is you know, common sense, but is it sensitive enough to tell you that this is true and this is pseudo? I don't think we're there yet. Um, there is no grading scale as such for OCTs at the moment. I think people go with the appearance of the optic nerve, 
people go with the thickness of the nerve fiber layer, either on the chart where you compare with the general population, um, and you go with that and your, your clinical symptoms and with your uh, disc appearance and try to piece the jigsaw together, as I said. You know, it's, people also sometimes find on Heidelberg sort of templates, sometimes they can look at the disc volume and calculate the disc volume, and if it's getting bigger or very big, then it then it's suggestive of a genuine true swelling. But as I said, once you don't have a one way that suggests all all ways are are valid, and uh, they don't have you know a best sort of option, you have to kind of look at all these little things together and try to figure out whether you're dealing with a pseudo swelling or a genuine swelling, and whether you want to take this further or not. Final question now, a very common distrusion that we all see in practice and distinguishing those from, from genuine swelling. For, for practitioners who don't, don't have an OCT in practice, are there any clinical pearls or ways that you can share with us um, you, you know, of increasing our confidence that it is a distrusion and, it, and it's not something else going on? So it can be a difficult thing, particularly for newly qualified clinicians, to make that differential diagnosis. It is, it is a very common and very difficult sort of differential sometimes between a disc drusion and a genuine optic nerve swelling. I think from the clinical point of view, if you don't have the OCT to look at, and having said that, I don't think the OCT is sometimes is good enough uh, where you can have very deep buried drusion and you can't be able to be certain. Um, but clinically, if you look at the fundus in patients who have disc drusion, they will have, if you look at the vessels, how, how they are branched on the surface of the retina, they have a different pattern of branching. They have the, this sort of tri-vessel sort of appearance, you know, two vessels going up, one vessel going down, or vice versa, rather than the normal temporal nasal vessels that you tend to get in your general population. So that's one thing, the different branching of vessels suggest possible disc drusen. The edges are usually a little bit lumpy, if you like, and that suggests a drusen rather than a genuine swelling. Your patients, in the vast majority of them, they are asymptomatic completely, and you pick this up rather than they come to you and say they have a problem with their vision. Be careful about asking about headaches because you ask the general question, do you have headaches? I'm still to see the patient who I ask, do you have headaches? And they'll say no they'll always have headaches. It's really, you need to qualify that question. What sort of headaches? Are they pressure headaches? Are they your general tension headache or something else is going on? Uh, if you look at, if you have the facility to look at the, the optic nerve with autofluorescence, for example, then you will see drusen quite clearly. I think blue light can sometimes help, but I don't think it's sensitive enough to show you deeper drusen. But autofluorescence is definitely a very good option. You know, again, if you're in a secondary service where you have access to all these little gadgets, you can do autofluorescence, you can do ultrasound, and you can do your enhanced depth imaging from, from the OCT. And that kind of spares you going through lots of other investigations. In fact, we can do that in one setting. And we used to do, be able to do that for our patients before COVID, where you, you get a patient who is suspected to have disc drusen, you do all these investigations in one setting, and then you tell the patient, look, there is nothing wrong with that. It's just how your nerve is, and we discharge them straight away. Thank you very much. And I'd like to thank you on behalf of the College of Optometrists. We really appreciate the time that you spent sharing with us with the webinar today on the podcast. It's been a really valuable session, lots of take-home messages, and I know 
everyone listening will probably have something that they will take straight back into practice. So thank you very much, Ali. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you again for the invite and happy that I was useful for, for your listeners. Thank you very much for listening to another webinar extra. For more college podcasts, head to the college website or just keep refreshing this feed every five seconds until another one appears. And please do also like, rate and subscribe and we'll speak to you again soon.